Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we're reading through 1 Samuel. Um, our teaching style around here is expository, so we just go through books verse by verse. Um, because of time, there's a couple sections that I won't read word for word. I'll just kind of summarize to get through it because there's like almost 90 verses I want to get through in these two chapters today. I promise we won't miss anything. Um, but we're reading through 1 Samuel. So we're up to chapter 17 today, and so far in the story, we've been watching this current king of Israel, the first king crowned in Israel. His name is Saul. He's been going through a dismantling process because he was disobedient to God. God told him, do this. He heard the command, shaved off like, like 20%, and then took the remaining 80 and said, look, I did everything that you said. We talked last week about the dangers of looking at partial obedience as obedience. According to the word of God, partial obedience isn't obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And that is how we're at the place today where Saul's kingdom is being systematically dismantled. God has already selected for himself a new king. This new king is still a young man. We're gonna see his story. He's gonna enter into the story today. But we're gonna pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse one today and there's a battle going on. So let's go one verse, verse one through about 11, and then we'll stop and then we'll reflect. So the Philistines, so this is a people group that Israel was constantly at war with. They live just west of where um, the capital city of Israel was, which was Gibeah at the time. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Ezekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That is nine feet, nine inches tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That is 125 pounds. He had a bronze armor on his leg and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That was about 15 pounds. And his shield bearer went before him and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, 
and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. Now let's pause right there. There's a lot to unpack in this section. And the first thing we have to unpack is the geography. So we're gonna throw a map up here. We're gonna start <clears throat> with a globe so you kind of get a sense for where we're going on Earth. We'll draw a little rectangle around that area and we're gonna zoom in. These are all of the major cities and areas that we're talking about today and I have a surprise for you. I've gotten some feedback that apparently a laser pointer wasn't strong enough for everyone. It was a weak laser and you could barely see it from the back row. Well, I have fixed this. I bought what is basically a lightsaber from Amazon. And before I use this, I just want you to be careful because if you look straight at it, you might hurt your eyes. I can't use it on the sides because these TVs will reflect it and if I shine this light on the TVs, I'm gonna frag somebody on the back row and I don't want that. Oh, see that? You gotta be careful. You don't put your finger on the trigger. All right, are you ready? Look at this thing. Don't look at it too long, all right? All right, so what we're looking at here is this is the area of uh, Israel, okay? So you've got uh, Mediterranean Sea over here on this side, you've got Dead Sea over here, over in this area, you've got Jordan, modern day Jordan. Uh, down here, you've got Egypt, Red Sea, Sinai Peninsula. We've kind of zoomed in. And what we're looking at here is this area called Philistia. This is the area of the Philistines. They all lived in this western region in a couple major, like five major cities. I put two of them up on the map because they're referenced today. You've got Ekron and Gath. Gath is where Goliath is from. Ekron is another Philistine city. Those are the two major cities the Philistines came to uh, battle in the Valley of Elah. Now over here you've got Bethlehem. This is over here where David lives. You've got Gibeah of Saul. This is the uh, kind of the uh, capital city of Israel at the time. It's Saul's hometown. And you've got Jerusalem. Jerusalem's gonna be mentioned later in the story. But now that you have an kind of orientation for where all these places are, I want you to direct your attention here to the Valley of Elah. So there's a mountain range here, and there's a mountain range here, and there is a big, massive valley right here. It's about a mile wide. And what probably happened is you had the children of Israel, the armies of Israel, gather for battle, since most of, the, most of them lived up here in this region, they probably would have gathered up here in Gibeah and then traveled down, and they would have been on the north side of the Valley of Elah. And then the Philistines would have come up around the bottom here, around the southwest, and they would have been camped on the south side of the mountain in the Valley of Elah. So that's essentially the battle uh, that we have today. So what's going on 
is you've got Israel on the north and the Philistines on the south, and every single day we're told that they rise up and they're ready for battle. They start psyching themselves up, they start putting on their armor, and they start marching out like they're going to fight. And they get right down to the base of the mountain, and they start staring at the other side. And there's this massive mile-wide chasm between them, and they're standing there and they're staring, and they're making some noise. It's a real Braveheart scene where they're pounding and they're shouting and they're waving swords. And out of the commotion, this giant walks out. Now this giant's name is Goliath. He's from the hometown of Gath. And we're told that he's nine feet, nine inches tall. Now what's interesting is in the Septuagint, I've explained what the Septuagint, it is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Greek translation, Goliath is described as only six feet, nine inches tall. Now, I'll be honest with you, that's just not tall enough. That's about how tall I am. I'm six, nine and a half, six, ten on a good day when I wear my cowboy boots. I can't walk around with a 125-pound bronze coat of mail on me. I can't carry a spear with a 15-pound kettlebell weight spear at the end. No, that's not happening. This dude was nine feet, nine inches tall. That's what we're going with. And just for a reference point, this stage is about two feet. I'm about six, nine and a half. If you were to come stand here and then just kind of look, um, this, I, we're still short here. About another foot is as tall as he would be with his feet on the ground. That's how big this dude was. Now there's something about the story that's always bothered me. Every time I've ever heard this story taught, when Goliath is presented, he's just presented as this weird one-off anomaly. That he's kind of like maybe like the only giant in the Bible. Okay, maybe there's some other ones, but like there's none with names. He's just kind of this weird anomaly. He's just like this guy who just steps out and he gets slaughtered by David. Sorry, spoiler. But he comes out and he's this massive dude and you're like, oh, okay, okay, well, it's just a weird thing and then we just kind of go on. That's always bothered me because that's not accurate. In 2 Samuel 21, 15 through 22, and in 1 Chronicles 20 through verse 4 through 8. Now, if you're worried, you're like, you're going too fast. I can't write all that down. I do post my notes on the website the Sunday afternoon. So by this afternoon, the recording of today's service and my notes will be posted on our website. You can download them and read through them. Sometimes I put a little Easter eggs and, and little jewels in there that uh, maybe you might have missed. So um, uh, definitely check out the notes. But I'll have these notes in there. But in 2 Samuel 21, 15 through 22, and 1 Chronicles 24 through 8, we learn of four other giants. And surprise, all of them are Philistines. One of them was actually Goliath's brother. Two giants in the same family. One of them was described as a man who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Now that isn't an indication of what the giants, like we don't, we're not told that Goliath had that, but we are told this one other giant had that. And what's interesting to me is that when we start looking through these other texts and we see these other giants, we find out that they're all Philistines. And when we start connecting the dots with some of the things we've talked about previously, like last week, you start discovering that this idea of a guy who's nine foot tall, it's not just something that happens. And the fact that there's five giants among the Philistines isn't something that just happened. 
There's precedent for this. I talked last week about this uh, event from Genesis chapter six, when we're told the sons of God, which were these angelic beings, they stepped over the line, the boundaries that God had set up for the disembodied world and the embodied world, and they took human wives for themselves, and they had offspring, and these offsprings, the offspring from human women and these uh, fallen angels were what were referred to in Genesis 6 as Nephilim, giant people. The flood wiped them out, and I talked about last week how after the flood at the Tower of Babel, these uh, other angelic beings were placed over countries of the earth. They overstepped their bounds. There was another rebellion. They um, uh, took for themselves wives. The same offense happened again, and we have Nephilim propagating on the earth again. Then there's giants again. And one of the first things that the children of Israel were told to do when they come in the promised land is to completely, utterly destroy these tribes who have bloodlines connected to these giant people. Now, when the children of Israel first came into the land, back in the book of Numbers, they were afraid. They were like, you guys know that there's descendants of Nephilim in there? There's giants. We can't take them on. And God punished them for their disbelief, their unbelief, and for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness until under Joshua, the people finally came in. And when they finally came into the land, they utterly destroyed these giant clans. Now, here's the thing. Once you've got, so the, the, the original offspring of, an, of these fallen sons of God and human women, that child was referred to as a Nephilim. It's half human, it's half fallen angelic being. But then that Nephilim takes for himself a wife and has children, and those children have children, and those children and children and children have children, and all of a sudden now you have an entire lineage and a bloodline that has this giant blood in them. And these descendants, not the Nephilim, the descendants of the Nephilim have multiple names in scripture. Let me give you some. So uh, Deuteronomy 2, 10 through 11, they're referred to as the Imim or the Zamzumim, these ancestors of giants who are also giants. Deuteronomy 2.20, we're told that uh, a group of people uh, in the region called these giants the Zuzim. Amos 2, 9 through 10, another name for them is the Amorites. The Amorite people were, were told in Amos 2 were as tall as cedar trees. They were giants, and they were completely, utterly destroyed. We also have this word in Deuteronomy 2, 8 through 23 um, called Rephaim. It is a Hebrew word translated as giant, Rephaim. And there's another word called Anakim. So there's all these words that different tribal groups in the region use for these descendants of the Nephilim, and they were all giant people. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because we're told in Joshua 11, 21 through 23, when the children of Israel came into the land, they were told, hey, here's the rules. This is is from Deuteronomy 20. Here's the rules. When you come into the land, when you come up on a tribe, Try to make peace with the tribe. And if they will make peace with you, then you bring them under Israel and you make them part of Israel. Make a peace treaty with them. But if they don't, 
and they rebel against you, make war with them and completely, utterly destroy them. That was the rule for everyone living in the land as Israel came in, except for six tribal groups. There were six tribal groups. When God told Joshua, when you come into the land, they don't make treaties. You completely, utterly destroy them. You put them under what uh, Josh, the, the book of Joshua calls the ban. They are completely and utterly destroyed, and all of their stuff gets destroyed. Six tribal groups. And we're told in Joshua 11, 21 through 23, that all of these groups at the end of Joshua's conquest were conquered. And that all, this is what Joshua 11 says, all of the Anakim, the giant clans, the giant people in this region were conquered, except for a few that were left in Gaza, Ashdod, and Gath. Joshua tells us that we did everything God told us to do, except for a couple giants that we didn't slay that lived in the town of Gath. And now, a couple hundred years later, we come up and we discover that there's this giant from Gath. Why is this important? Because this sheds and sheds light on and kind of colors the story in an entirely new way. What you're discovering here is that there are more things going on with the story than you initially discovered. This isn't just a story about God's people going to war with a foreign nation. This is a story about God's people having to deal with the consequences of God's people not doing their job a couple generations before. This interaction that you're seeing, this is a byproduct of God's people being disobedient, partial obedience. We took care of all of them. What about that dude over there? He looks like 10 feet tall. Did you take care of him? Well, we took care of most of them. Okay, well, that bloodline's gonna be an issue as we start moving forward. So this story starts coming alive because we're seeing these, these descendants of Israel having to deal with disobedience from previous generations, but we're also starting to see that Israel has taken their cues from previous generations. They're not just walking in disobedience, they're also lacking, walking in a lack of faith, just like the previous generations did. So when you see the story, we come to the realization that, okay, so the Lord has now departed the priesthood under Eli. The Lord has now departed the sitting king under Saul. What are the ramifications of God's presence departing among the leadership of God's people? All of God's people start walking wayward from the Lord. And what you have is this massive dude standing there barking at Israel with massive weapons and massive armor. It's one guy, but Israel is completely fearful. You've got an, an army probably in the neighborhood of maybe around 200,000, and they're all standing there enamored with this one guy saying, what are we gonna do? Well, how about a thousand of you just bum rush him and take him out? Did anybody think of that? 
No, they're so overwhelmed with what they see, they can't see past this giant in front of them. Which is interesting because if you look at the order, and I said this a couple weeks ago, the text doesn't just preach truth, the arrangement preaches truth. What was the lesson that God tried to teach Samuel exactly one chapter earlier when he went to David's house and was anointing the next king? Do not look at the outward appearance of man because it's deceiving. The author's trying to get you to understand, hey, this isn't just a thing where God's choosing the right man, but he's also talking in terms of enemies that you face. Stop looking at the outward appearance of this guy. And to drive that point home, a young boy named David enters the story. Let's go to verse 12. It says, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. His name was Jesse. He had eight sons, and, the days of Saul, and in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. And David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. All right, so he's taking kind of back from chapter 16. He's spending some time with Saul, then he's going over to do some uh, work with his dad. For 40 days, verse 16, the Philistines came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parcel of grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to uh, camp with your brothers. And also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So essentially, these guys are getting paid to serve in the military. I want you to take their payment and bring it home so we can survive. Verse 19, now Saul and they... And all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. They weren't really fighting. They were uh, kind of lined up like they were about to fight, but they were spending more time listening to Goliath than actually fighting. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went. And Jesse had commanded, just as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment at the host, was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of his baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brother. So he runs to the front lines like, hey, I'm here. What's going on? And as he talked with them, behold, the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. What is free in Israel? It means that his father's house wouldn't have to pay taxes anymore. Now that's enough for me, where do I sign? <laughs> I'll take on Goliath if I don't have to pay taxes anymore. 
David said to the men, verse 26, who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So he's basically asking, hey, I heard you guys over talking, or, or, or I overheard you guys talking about what's gonna happen to the guy who takes out Goliath. Like, is that true? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's true. Now verse, Verse 28, now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he was speaking to the men, when David was speaking to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. All right, so David comes down to deliver some food from his dad to his brothers. But David is already building a reputation. He's spending half of his day driving demonic spirits away from Saul through worship music, and the other half of his day, he's delivering cheese to his brothers on the front lines. And when he gets there, he hears the taunt of this guy named Goliath, and when he, this is fascinating, when he hears the taunt, he doesn't hear the taunt the way that the rest of the Israelites hear the taunt. When the armies hear the taunt, when the armies of Israel stand there and they hear the taunt, all they hear is, that is a big dude. Look how sharp his sword is. Can you believe how heavy his armor is? There's no way, we don't have a single weapon that would pierce that. When David hears the taunt, he's not thinking how big the guy is, how heavy his armor, how sharp his sword is. He's thinking, who does this bozo think he is? This uncircumcised Philistine is a phrase that means, this guy is not in covenant with our God, the God of the angel armies. This guy has no covenant with Yahweh. Who is this guy thinking that he can come and take on our God? This guy doesn't know who, he's, who he is. And so he starts asking around, and he starts asking around, but what's going to happen to the guy who takes, him, takes this guy on? And we, we look at David, and we're like, this guy, he's got, he's got so much boldness. Why, is, why was David's reaction so much different than the rest of Israel? There's one answer to that question. It's because when David was looking at the situation, he wasn't looking at Goliath. See, all of Israel was staring at Goliath. You believe how big this guy is? This is trouble. But when David shows up on the scene, after 40 days of all of Israel standing there staring and looking at Goliath, David shows up and he doesn't see Goliath. Why doesn't David see Goliath? Because of what we talked about when we kicked off the service with Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. Colossians 3, 2 says... Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on earth. David shows up and his eyes are not looking at Goliath. They're looking at the Lord. And this contrast is driven even further in this conversation in verse 28 with David's brother Eliab. David shows up and demonstrates that his entire worldview is built on faith in God. There's nothing my God can't do. Show me a bigger giant. You got anybody that's 15 feet tall? How about a 30 foot tall guy? Doesn't matter. 
a thousand pound or a, a military uh, male, uh, maybe, I don't know, like a, a hundred pound uh, spear with it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you throw at us because my God is bigger than this. And you've got David who's demonstrating faith and then you've got Eliab. And Eliab's response is scorn and anger at his brother. Why is Eliab's response different? Because Elias, Eliab is just like the rest of Israel. He has spent the last 40 days staring at the problem and not God. This army is standing out there and every single day they're falling for the trap. This trap that the only thing you need to think about and look at is the problem, the issue, the fear, the giant. Listen to what he says. Stare at how big his boots are. Look at the size of that guy. Not a single person in Israel is, is saying, well, how about we look at the Lord? Around the campfires that night, no one is sitting around looking at their Bibles, pulling out scripture saying, man, you know, God is, he's kind of done bigger things for us in the past. Maybe we should start thinking about what the Lord can do in this kind of situation. No, why aren't they doing that? Because the Lord has departed. The Lord has departed all of the leadership and has started to affect the people and no one's sitting around talking about what the Lord can do anymore, except for one man who we're told just one chapter early that the Holy Spirit, the presence of God rushed on him and it didn't leave from the moment he was anointed. And so when he shows up, he is the symbol among the people of what you should be looking at. And so when I read this, I wonder if we today can have eyes to see what the scripture is trying to show to us. If we see a kid like David, who is so filled with faith when he confronts a situation, and then we read about his brother and the rest of Israel, they're so filled with fear that they can't even recognize faith when it shows up. If we're honest with ourselves, do we live in that way? Are we as a church or as individuals or as heads of our home spending so much time talking about and staring at the problems, the giants? Do we as fathers, when we gather our family around the dinner table, do we talk about all of the issues or do we talk about the magnitude of our God who, who makes all of these other issues seem almost non-existent because of his power and his might? When I look through this, I. I just wonder how much time we spend scrolling through our phones, listening to the taunts of this culture and the enemy. Are we so fixated on giants that we become blind to what real faith looks like? Oh, could we even recognize it in our own lives? Well, word gets back to Saul that David wants a piece of this, uh, this giant. And Saul's, and this is the summary of like verses 30 through 39, Saul's initial response is, no, can't have him. You're a kid, man. You're not allowed to have any of this. You couldn't take him. And so what David does is he cites his resume. I don't know. I mean, I've killed a lion and a bear. All right, well, lions and bears, that is, that's impressive. But this is a full-grown nine-foot man. What David is saying in citing his resume of lions and bears is he's saying, this guy, he's nothing more than an animal to the Lord. And I've taken care of animals before. He's not in covenant with God. This guy's nothing. So Saul eventually acquiesces and says, okay, I'll let you go in, but I'm gonna give you my armor. 
And there's this whole moment where Saul puts his armor on, and, or uh, Saul puts his armor on David, and it doesn't fit. And it's this real interesting prophetic moment where the coming king doesn't quite fit into the current king's robes. He's not old enough. He's got to grow into it. But also, when he does grow into it, those aren't the kind of things he's going to be wearing because he doesn't put his comfort in the things made with man, or the hands of man. He puts his comfort in the Lord. It's this really interesting scene. But it ends with David just saying, I can't wear this. It's going to hinder me. So we're told that David goes out to fight Goliath in his shepherd robe, with his shepherd staff, and his sling. Now, Sean uh, Dowdy here at the church got me this as a Christmas present last year. This is the kind of sling David would have had. All right, just a simple rope, little spot woven in right here for a rock. And just so you know, the stones that slingers would have used in Israel, they're not like your little river rocks that you go down and you just skip across. They were about the size of like a small tennis ball. That's how big we're talking. And it would have fit right here in this little area. And you put your two fingers through this hole. And then you grab this other side with a knot. And then you just put your rock in it. You sling it and you let it go. And wherever you point your finger, the rock flies. Now, I'm not very good at this. I was good enough to hit my son's car with a rock side, and <laughs> I didn't tell you that happened. Um, I can make the rock go. I'm just still working on where it goes. But these guys were good. They were impressive. They could sling a rock up to 100 miles an hour, and we're told that they could hit a hare at about 50, 75 yards away. These dudes were impressive. So David goes, verse 40, and the story begins. It says, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David responded to the Philistine. No, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, the God of angel armies, the God of the armies of Israel who you have defiled. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I'm going to give your dead bodies to the hosts of the Philistines this day, to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly, all these people standing around watching, will know that the Lord saves 
And he doesn't do it with a sword or a spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. And you can hear that. And he let it go. He slung it and it struck the Philistine on his forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheep. This is, this is Goliath's sword. Drew it out of its sheath and killed him, cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now, I'm guessing you've heard this story a couple times, and when we initially started off the service, I, I prayed that we would slow down and some things would maybe jump out to us that we haven't seen before. And so in that, with that spirit, I want to zoom in just on verses 46 and 47. I want to call out David's motivation for why he felt necessary to kill Goliath. He gives us two reasons on why David wanted to kill Goliath. The first reason why he wanted to kill Goliath was so that the whole earth would know that Yahweh is Lord. That every, there would be no question who the real God was. It's Israel's God. That's the first reason why he did this to make sure that all the nations would know that God is the real God. And the second reason why he did this is so that God's people would know that God doesn't save with a sword and a spear. Now, why did David have to do this? Why did he say that? Because David, we, we talked about this just a moment ago, David wasn't looking at the same battlefield that the rest of Israel was looking at. David wasn't looking at Goliath as the greatest giant on the battlefield. The greatest giant on that battlefield was unbelief. That's the giant David was fighting that day. Goliath, he's nothing. The real giant that's plaguing Israel is the fact that they didn't believe that God is the only God, and that that only God saves not with sword and with spear. Now what's interesting to this is you start reading through this, you start understanding that this story in a way is a foreshadow of one of David's descendants who would fight a similar battle with a giant. And this is why it's so important to, to read through Scripture and become familiar with connecting the dots because no story just stands on its own. It's connected to a hundred other stories behind it and in front of it. And we're told that one of David's descendants, so David is going to become king one day, he's going to have a kingdom, he's going to have a throne, and we're told in Luke 1.32 that one of David's descendants is going to sit on that throne of David and rule, and his name is Jesus. 
And as we start looking forward with the story and connecting the dots, we see that in Jesus' ministry, Jesus had a very similar message. There's only one Lord, and he's the kind of Lord that doesn't save with swords and spears. He's the kind of Lord that saves with a cross and nails. And then we find this descendant of David finding, fighting a similar giant that David fought in Goliath, but this giant isn't named Goliath. This giant is named Death. And this descendant of David named Jesus conquers death with a rolled away stone. I'm telling you, you got to read the whole book. You got to read all of it. And what's fascinating to me is that when you're reading through this story of David and Goliath, our hearts immediately want to do the same thing that the children of Israel did, which was look at the wrong thing. We want to we be enamored with Goliath. We want to we make the story about David's courage, but that's not the story that's being told. The story isn't David's courage. The story, the story is David's faith in the living God to do the things that man can't do, and that's the same story that the gospel presents. That Jesus conquered the great giant of death, the giant you could never conquer, and the repercussions of Jesus conquering the great giant of death are the same kind of repercussions that happened the moment that David killed Goliath. All the Philistines started running, and all the children of Israel chased after him and started conquering those lesser giants. They started putting the rest of the Philistines to death. There was victory because there was victory. And so the beauty of this story is looking at the way that Christ, as our better David, conquered a greater giant than Goliath in death, meaning that since the greatest enemy of all time, sin and death, has been conquered, what could possibly be a greater giant in your life today? The lesser, okay, so if God has conquered death, then what really is cancer? These are terms we don't like thinking of because these are things that, well, well, well I'm not really afraid of death, I'm just afraid of the process. I, I, don't, I don't like what it's gonna do to my family. Okay, well, but let's just talk in Bible terms here. What you're promised is that all of us are moving towards a point of death. And that death isn't the end of anything, it's actually the beginning of everything. As Christians, we're taught to think differently about death because we had a king who conquered it. And in conquering it now, everything in the world is different. Now we don't watch the news like everyone else watches the news. We don't process pandemics the way everyone else processes pandemics. Have I, have I pushed your button enough? What else, could I, what else offensive thing could I say? Politics, don't, that we don't do politics the way everyone else do, does politics. The whole, literally because of Christ's work and the power of resurrection, the, the, the enemy being conquered means that everything moving forward is nothing more than a mini lesser giant that in some way has already been conquered and you don't have to be afraid of. 
So I'm talking anxiety, I'm talking fear, I'm talking sickness, I'm talking about worry, I'm talking about ungodliness, I'm talking about your selfishness, all of this, it, it, it pales in comparison to the great enemy of sin and death that has been conquered in your life. And so the question is, why aren't you following in the line of victory that Jesus has led for us? That's the beauty of the story. That it's a foreshadowing of a better king conquering a better giant and freeing people in a better way than David ever could. So, the problem with this is that when a true king shows up with true victory, lesser, insecure kings, they start to panic. And here's why it's so difficult for us to process this, because in many situations, you are that lesser insignificant king. You like sitting on the throne of your own heart, calling the shots in your heart or your home, telling people what to do. You've been given some responsibility at work, and, or, or maybe you started a business, and, and in some ways you didn't intend to start off this way, but now you've forgotten who gave you that, that gifting and those responsibilities, and you're looking at this thing you've built, and you say, man, this is my thing. Look at what I have done. And all of a sudden, King Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts nudging up against that sense of entitlement that you have. I'm, I deserve this. Don't you know what I've been through? Don't you know my struggles? Don't you know my people's struggles? Don't you know what, what, what we've been through? What I, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he says, yeah, I'm, look, I know, I know that you like running your life and I know you like calling the shots, but you're not a king like I am king. And you're gonna have to get off that throne you're going to have to worship me rather than calling other people to come worship you. And this is what happens with Saul. A lesser insignificant king gets intimidated when the real anointed king shows up on the scene. And that's what we see in uh, 1 Samuel 18. The first five verses tell us that when David came back, he bonds with David's, uh, Saul's son, Jonathan. But I want to pick up the story in verse 6. So after the conquering of Goliath, as they were coming home, David returned from striking down the Philistine, verse six. The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've only ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? That prophecy that Samuel told him, that a neighbor is going to come in that's better than you and is going to take the kingdom, it's already begun. Verse 9, Saul eyed David from that day on, and the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did day by day. So Saul had his spear in his hand, verse 11, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'm gonna pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but the Lord had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and put him as a commander of a thousand. 
And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul, excuse me, when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So after Goliath, David comes back and everybody loves him. Saul, Jonathan, Saul's son, loves him. They have a friendship. The ladies love David. All of the warriors love David. They love fighting with him. He's a good general. But Saul doesn't like him. And we find out that Saul's solution to somebody he doesn't like is to kill him. But he can't kill him. He tries with a spear. doesn't work. So he tries with a military post. I'll put him on the front lines and maybe he'll get taken out. And that story's gonna come back to bite David later because David's gonna get himself in a situation where he sins against the Lord. And the way he's gonna try and solve that problem is by putting the man he sinned against on the front line to die. None of these things are working. Every time he puts David in a situation that seems like a predicament, he comes back and he's even more successful. So Saul hatches one final plan. He says, I'm going to ensnare him with one of my daughters. Now the first plan, verses 17 through 21, doesn't work out. It was David's oldest daughter. She gets married off to somebody else, but he has another daughter. This is the story we'll finish on today. Verse 22, so Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delighted in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I'm such a poor man and I have no reputation? So essentially he's saying, like, I've got nothing to offer you. I can't take your daughter. Like, I'm a poor guy. I have, I have, no, I, uh, like I have no gift for you as the king. Like, you're, you're something. I'm nobody. So the servants of Saul said to him, go and tell David this. So Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. You're not getting that without probably dying at the hands of a Philistine. Verse 26 And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time had expired. So David arose and went, took his men, and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought all of their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, his daughter, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they did come out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. The point of this section of the story is that it doesn't matter how dangerous or demeaning the request from Saul was, David was victorious. It didn't matter if it was a giant, it didn't matter the task. God, David wasn't looking at the giant or the task. 
He wasn't even looking at the throne. He had no ambitions to become king, even though he was anointed as king. David had eyes for one thing and one thing only. He loved the Lord, and that's all he wanted to look at. Now, to close out today, I want to bring 1 Corinthians 10, 11 into the story. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says this, Now things happened Excuse me. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The beginning of chapter 10, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he says to them, all of the story of Israel, and he highlights most of their story of wandering in the wilderness, but everything in the Old Testament counts. It was all written down for one purpose, our instruction the instruction of those who would live at the end of the age to come. And we've talked numerous times, we went through Revelation, 1 John 2, 18, that we're living in the end times. Every moment, from the moment Jesus rose from the dead up until today is considered biblically as the last days. So we're living in the last days, meaning that this text was written for our instruction. So my desire today is that we examine this text with fresh eyes and we ask the Holy Spirit to instruct us. And the main theme from these two chapters is one thing, faith. It's not about the giant. It's not about all the tertiary issues surrounding Saul and his kingdom. It's about one thing, belief or unbelief. And so my prayer today is that as we have read through this story, that that seed gets planted in your heart and God starts challenging you to grow in your faith. Because much like the children of Israel who stood on the, the edge of that mountain, we have a habit of only looking at the problems inside the church and outside of the church. We look at the economy and we're like, ah, yay, yay. We look at the price of food and we, I don't know how I'm gonna feed my family. Look, I know exactly how you're going to feed the, your family. The same way God has always provided for his family. That's how you're going to feed your family. Oh, I don't know about my job. You don't have to worry about your job. The job you got now, God got you that job, even if you forgot that he got you that job. And he can get you another job if you need it. And if you're in a season where you can't find one, there's probably something he's teaching you in that season too. So don't shut your eyes and only look at the giant, the giant of, I don't have a job. Look, giants come in all shapes and sizes. The point of this story is that they're all many compared to the great giant that Christ has conquered. And in that giant that he conquered, he's given all of us victory. And that victory means you don't have to live in fear anymore, about anything. There's nothing that you have to be afraid of. Where you go, what you do, where you walk, living outside of the bonds of fear is a joy that God has given his children. You don't have to do it anymore. Anxiety, worry, sickness, you don't have to live with that stuff serving as handcuffs to your freedom in Christ anymore. That's the promise that Christ has given you. He slayed the giant, and so we're supposed to follow this. So, so here's what I want. I want you to read this story, and I want, I want you to look at David, and I want his faith to be an example that stirs you. 
I want you to read that story and say, I would not, I've, that's not how I would have acted. But by God, that's how I want to act. I want to see things differently than the rest of the church is seeing things. I want eyes of faith that see God and only God and not the Goliath who is taunting me through the news or through my phone. I'm tired of it. I want, to, I want courage to rise up in me and I want to stop living like Eliab who's only staring at giant problems and I want to fix my eyes on Jesus. This is what I want this story to do for you. There's no big call to action other than this. Consider how you are living your life. Are you a person of faith or are you a person of fear? And if you are a person of fear, let me just invite you to let that go, put it in the grave, and enjoy the freedom that's being offered to you to walk a life freedom. All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.